and see the date on it. In God's time, right? Yeah, you're right, Amen. In God's time, yeah. <laughs> well, I knew when I heard it, it was for you. I knew it. I knew it. I'm well. The Lord works in the way He wants it. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, and it all works together. Yeah, it's not cryptic what we're doing. I'm just in, in 2019. I sent that song to Reggie. That he just sang. and I said, uh, "Well, I knew when I heard it, Reggie would be able to do what he just did." To and the Lord brought it back through to to his memory. That's why we all work together. So make sure. Yeah, but it's in God's timing that we do these things. Ironically, Reggie always reaches out to me to ask me, uh, I'll send to him what the general themes are of the sermons that I'm preaching. And today's sermon is about revenge. And so what's more appropriate than having a heart that forgives? (laughs) Who would have known in 2019 that on this Sunday I'd be preaching a sermon about? I didn't know about revenge, revenge. And so God bless you, my brother. That was perfect timing. But God's timing is always perfect. Always perfect, it brings it together. Yeah, don't take that out of the rotation, bro. No, don't take that out. Father, we love you today and we know that you have been consistently loving us. Why? Because as the speaker said yesterday, because you told us, because you show us. So now we ask you to bless us in this sanctuary, help our efforts to be encouraging to someone, bless all those who are grieving, who need a word of support, help it to be not as I will, but as you will, Father. We thank you for the power of the word. We know that it's a living organism that can get in us and change our lives. We allow it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. And now we ask you to let the power of his exhortation and direction guide us in this place right now. It's in his name we pray and ask it all. Amen. Nineteen seventy-three, James Brown had a song that a whole a lot of y'all used to walk around humming, might not even know all the reasons why he had that song going. It was a popular song. In fact, it reached number one on the soul charts called The Big Payback. Big Payback. It was supposed to be the soundtrack to a song, I mean to a movie that was out. But it didn't make it. It didn't make it on that movie soundtrack because the studio basically dissed James Brown and said that he sang too long. 
what you did. <laughs> what, you, what you did all the songs too long. Yeah. But they regretted it because the song became so popular, became one of James Brown's most popular songs. Um, even though the entire the entire track is negative. It's negative. But we like stuff like that. We like negative stuff. It brings us, I don't know what kind of uh, endorphins we get from singing stuff like that, but James, James's track has been sampled so many times. There's so many popular songs that have sampled the big payback. Uh, the, uh, the guitar line, all of that is in so many popular songs that you're probably not even aware of. So musically, it was uh, probably a masterpiece. But it's all about getting somebody back paying somebody back for some wrong that they have done to you. And so I come today and I ask you, you have something in that, in your life, somebody in your life who has wronged you. Um, many of you probably figured out now in the 18 years or whatever the period of time is you've known me that I am a nerd and that I have no problems with that. And one of the things that I like to do is watch movies. Some of them are British. A lot of them are. And one particular film that I have um, enjoyed through the years is called The Count of Monte Cristo. All right. It was written by an author named Alexander Dumas. He also wrote another series of stories that I'm very fond of called The Three Musketeers. But in The Count of Monte Cristo, it is the epitome of a revenge film. It's in fact, the whole thing is about revenge. It's about um, a man, I won't go into the names, but it's about a man who is wronged legitimately, who is wronged by evil people. And the wrong is so deep that his father dies behind it. And then he's charged with a crime that he did not commit and thrown into prison. Um, the prison is, uh, uh, he's there for years, but the entire time he's in prison, he is driven by one incessant thought, I'm going to get them back and I'm going to make them pay for what they have done to me. Chateau d'If was the uh, prison he was in. When we went on our Mediterranean cruise, we actually saw <laughs> this prison, which was probably much more thrilling to me on that ship than anybody else to be able to lay eyes on it. But when he escaped from it, he was able to find the location of a hidden treasure, which made him immensely wealthy. And he came back on the scene as the wealthiest man in the community. And he set about spending all his wealth and resources, building himself up, positioning himself to try to make sure he could keep his promise to himself and exact revenge on the people. He bankrupted them. I mean, he did all the things that you can do when you got a lot of money. But all of it was based on a negative premise. And that is, I've got to put myself in position 
to be able to take care of the wrongs that have been done to me. And even though the Lord doesn't drop resources like that into our hands, we too can set about trying to make sure we can position ourselves so that we can give folk back for the things that they have done for us. And I just want you to think one moment, how much energy does that take? How much energy does it take to hold that kind of negative, that kind of negative thought in your head for all those years so that you can position yourself? Better yet, how much good have you missed while you're thinking about the negativity to get that person back? I won't dare tell you the end of that story. If you ever get a chance to see it, man, check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. But let's just say vengeance consumes you like poison. So one must ask, how is it that we are in the body of Christ supposed to deal with people who wrong us? I want to start out with that premise. I don't want there to be any mistake that I'm talking to people who have been legitimately injured. I'm not talking about you think they've done something to you. No, they have. They've done something to you. And sometimes it was intentional that they did it. But nevertheless, whether it was intentional or not, you have been harmed. How you or someone in your life, someone you care about has been harmed, sometimes egregiously. How do you deal with those circumstances in the body of Christ? What is it that you and I are supposed to do? And can I tell you that the answer is going to be a Jesus answer? All right? And the answer, being a Jesus answer for Saul, means that it's going to be hard for us. Because we think from the world standard. And the world standard tells you that revenge is a dish that's best served cold. Revenge is a dish that's best served cold. What does that mean? That means that you wait on it. You milk it. You don't want it immediately. You want to see them sweat. And just like a a dish that you eat, you want to eat your final revenge when it's good and cold, which means it's maximum problem for the person that you're trying to get back. That's what that's best served cold means. People want to wait for it. So they, the world system would tell you, be patient. But be patient to exact a negative end. And that would not be what Jesus Christ wants us to do. In fact, what we're going to talk about today is revenge from Jesus' standpoint. And Jesus says to us clearly, Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Now, that's a heavy statement, and it only works, I'll say this as I go into my my, my thesis here, it only works if you trust Jesus. If you don't trust Jesus, then you're busy doing what you do to get back at someone. But if you trust him, then his timing is perfect. 
and he can give you a heart that forgives, even if it's three years late that it happens, he can bless you with it. And so the bottom line scripture on this, the, uh, the baseline scripture on this uh, message comes from Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Matthew chapter 5, 38 and 42 are the verses that I want to read for you. And, 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 and this is the culminating sermon in this series that I've called Pressure Points. Culminating sermon. We've been laboring our way through it. And we first have talked about how James wrote instructions to us on dealing with the pressures of life, how James taught us to deal with the issues that arise in life. And then we use as our example, the one who is the example for everything we do, Jesus. How does Jesus deal with these issues? uh, First thing we saw is how Jesus dealt with the trials of life when everything seems to go wrong. And we were reminded that mama told us that it'd be days like this. Uh, every day, you know, you'll reach a point when things just kind of go wrong. And, and then we watched Jesus teach us how to deal with temptation. Um, and we reminded you that the devil didn't really make you do it. All right. He did not really make you do it. And then favoritism, partiality. Favoritism creates all kinds of problems. And we asked the question and answered uh, does God have favorites? And, and then we went to the old words, how much they can hurt us. And words can tear us down in so many ways. And we reminded you that you need to watch your mouth. Watch your mouth, the things you say. And, and then the last time we were together, we dealt with the issue of conflict. And how did Jesus deal with conflict? And we asked the, the question, that's been emblazoned in our minds from our dear departed brother, Rodney King. Why can't we all just get along? Today, we came to remind you that the Bible clearly tells us that vengeance is mine. Let me see if I can read the scripture, Matthew 5, 38 and 42. It says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But... This is Jesus talking. Uh, and depending on the Bible you have, it might be in red. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What? I mean, what? <laughs> do not resist an evil person, can. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. Help me, Lord. (laughs) And then the next verse says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat too. What in the world? If anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with them two miles. And then 42 says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Lord have mercy. Revenge. 
revenge is part of the world system. Why? Why is it that we believe that you have to exact revenge on people who have done something to you? What is it about the world that makes you think I got to get them back? There's this notion that if you do not retaliate and one up someone, then you are weak. <laughs> that you are weak. And we, above all else, this is men and women. This ain't got nothing to do with masculinity or uh, being, you know, this is, this is people. Will not give you the notion that you can take advantage of them. They're going to let you, as we say, walk all over them. And so when you do something, intentionally or not, they have to make it their mission to get you back. But it's always the getting back. That's the problem. <laughs> it's always putting it together so that you can get back with them that creates problems. So off the bat, let me give you some what Jesus says. Let me go through this and then uh, make sure you understand. If you're going to follow Jesus's guide and admonition on how you deal with someone who has wronged you, the first thing you have to do is reject what is acceptable. All right. Reject what is acceptable. What's typically acceptable, you have to reject that. Jesus, when he was teaching, told us that we need to turn the other cheeks. It's called. Yeah. And it's the fifth of six times in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus took a traditional interpretation, the normal and expected interpretation of the law. And then he gave a radical departure from it. Because this is a radical departure. This is a radical departure. You know why? Because the Old Testament teaching was exactly the opposite of this. The Old Testament teaching gave you guidance on how you got folks back. And here comes Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, and he tells you, reject that. Let me, let me see if I can make it a look. The Old Testament taught folk how to get an eye for an eye. That's in the Old Testament. Yeah. And it was intended to show you how to set a ceiling on how you could retaliate against someone because some people in the Old Testament, if you put their eye out, they would kill you. Or try to anyway. So the law came in to impose limits and said, look, somebody put your eye out. The most you can do is the same thing to them. That's the psyche that people came up with. But what it also leads is the understanding that you can at least do that to them. I can at least get you back for what you've done to me. And so when Moses gave the Israelites this standard, there hadn't been any limits on revenge. You just did what you thought you needed to do under the circumstances. And so Moses came in to set boundaries with the law. That's what the law does. But the law is not the perfect vehicle for relationships. No, no, no. The law does not help us create good relationships. Somebody who puts out your eye in a fight, then the assumption is, then I'm going to put both of yours out. How does that help us become brothers? 
It doesn't. You lose a tooth in a fight in the parking lot, I go burn your house down. So the law had to come in place and put boundaries in place and say, no, you were not entitled to do that because we can't govern that kind of activity. So the law comes in and says, this is the maximum you can do. But watch this now. And this is always, always what we forget. Just because the Old Testament scripture and the law says you could do that doesn't mean you have to. And therein lies reject what is acceptable. Because Jesus Christ comes in and says, you have been wrong. It doesn't mean you have to retaliate in kind. And that's when everybody's sitting at him, looking at, looking at him like y'all looking at me. This is Jesus Christ's way. And when you go do the Jesus way, it's going to be a stark departure from what the world tells you to do. For Jesus' followers, which we would be included in, mercy and grace are always appropriate. The law does not contemplate mercy and grace. The law gives you a boundary. Jesus comes in telling us, but you can love them differently than they treated you. Now be careful when you start in your worldly mind rejecting what Jesus says. Let me tell you why. Because you have a different notion of this depending on which side of the equation you are on. Yeah. Mercy, let's get some definitions, is withholding punishment from someone who deserves it. That's what mercy is. Yeah. When people come in and say, I just want mercy. That means I know I'm entitled to something, some consequences, but I just want some mercy. And when I don't give you the punishment you need, then I'm being merciful. Okay? Grace suggests that I'm giving gifts to someone who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. I'm giving you something you don't deserve. Mercy and grace. And Jesus tells us that that's how we should respond to people who have hurt us. Why? It's simple. Because that's how God responds to us when we hurt him. We always take that out of the equation, what we do to him. We always take out of the equation how we've wronged the Lord. We always take out of the equation the mercy and the grace that God has given to us. And we still have an expectation that God will treat us that way. But we do not share that with people who wrong us. And what Jesus comes and does is says, do unto others as you would have him do unto you. Mercy and grace. And so reject what's, accept what's acceptable, push the worldview away, and then respond in grace. Respond with grace. All right? And then he, lay he lays it out, y'all. He doesn't make any bones about it. He gave three examples of how you respond with grace. All right? Going the extra mile is one of them. He said, first, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. According to the NIV Bible, the Greek verb that's used about slapping somebody in the face was really 
slapping somebody in the face is seen as an insult. It still is. Oh, yeah. That, that ain't no love tap. <laughs> All right, you gonna slap me in the face. Yeah. Who won the Oscar immediately after Will slapped Chris? Who won the Oscar immediately after? Nobody knows. Because all folk did for the next month is talk about the slap. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is it was a monumental Oscar that was won immediately after that incident. Quest Love won an Oscar for the soundtrack that he made on the festival that took place in Harlem that the world didn't know about, except for the fact that someone had recorded it and put the recordings away. There was a festival that was, re- that was held in Harlem over the course of the entire summer. There was, there was a concert every Sunday. 50,000 people attended every weekend a black festival. It rivaled, as they say, Woodstock, but nobody's ever heard of it. All the top entertainers in the country appeared at the festival. They found the film. It's a Netflix show. That, that's why I've not seen it. It's a Netflix show, and Quest Love did the soundtrack to it, and that documentary won an Oscar. But nobody knows about it because of the selfishness of two actors, one in exacting revenge on the other. That's what revenge does to you. It clouds all the good stuff that's going on around you. And nobody, you can't even see what's happening, not just in your world, but you can't see it in the other folk world. You can't celebrate with them. You can't congratulate them. And that's why Jesus says, Turn the other cheek. I know it's an insult, and I know it's bad, but Jesus says don't resort to violence because you receive this insult. He says, and watch this, it's better to endure being insulted twice than to resort to violence. It's better to be cussed out twice. All right. I told you this is the Jesus way. Not only did he say turn the other cheek, he says in the next example, if a man asks you for your, if he asks you for your garment, give him your coat. So, to know, to understand what he's saying, you got to know that the tunic was an inner garment, an inner garment, and the cloak was an outer garment. The Old Testament law prohibited somebody from taking a man's outer garment because of the harshness of the weather where they live. If you took his outer garment from him, he would be exposed to the elements and suffer grievous bodily harm because it was so harsh over there. 
And so it's against the law to take a man's tunic or coat. But Jesus says, Jesus said that their security and protection will come from the Lord. And if someone asks you for your coat, for your shirt, give them your coat too. And depend on the Lord to care for you. Didn't I say a few minutes ago it was radical what Jesus is saying? Because he's saying the law affords a measure of protection, but it does not create fellowship. And what he's saying is give them the coat too. And then the last thing is go to second mile. It was the law at that time that a Roman soldier could come to any Jewish citizen and demand that he help him carry his pack at least one mile. Rome was in charge of the area where Jerusalem was and Jesus' primary ministry took place. And the harshness of their rule had, had regulations like this that the, the, the Romans walking around with these heavy packs, marching everywhere. You've been in Bible study with us. We've been talking about the full armor, uh, the whole armor of God. And we've been talking about the, the shoes that they wear and how significant they were in maintaining good order. Generals have said for years, even since that time, that the strength of the army lies on the feet of its soldiers. And so if you don't have good shoes and take care of them, then you can defeat that army because they will wear out that much quickly, more quickly. And so a soldier, but more could come to you and say, carry my pack for me. And without question that, that, so, that our citizen would be required to carry that pack one mile, one mile, up to one mile. Now you can imagine that them folk couldn't stand that rule. That means I'm standing up here talking to my family, dealing with my children, and here comes Bob, the Roman soldier. And Bob, the Roman soldier, interrupts my conversation with my family and tells me, demands that I carry his pack for one mile. That means I'm really two miles out of place because I got to carry his pack for a mile and then walk back that mile back to my family. So you can imagine how the folk, when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, were looking at him when he says to them, if he asks you to go one mile, go two. Yeah, somebody in the back cussed. When Jesus said that, you, you, I'm sure, I don't know what the cuss words were back then. Yeah, somebody said, man, you out your rabbit mind. Somebody said that to Jesus when he was talking because you mean they can get me and I'm supposed to go one mile and then another one? Which means I got to walk back. I'm really walking four miles that day. That's what Jesus said to them. He said, when you're representing the body of Christ, you ought to always, and this is where the terminology goes, this is where we get the language, you ought to always be willing, hear me now, to go the extra mile to help people. That's what going the extra mile means, doing more than is required of you. So these are grace responses. 
These are grace responses. People didn't deserve it, but in grace, I'm going to give it to you. And remember now, definition of grace is what? Somebody who doesn't deserve it. Now, what happens when I do that under those circumstances? How does that Roman soldier respond to me when I say, okay, we can go. I, I, when I get to the mile and then I say, come on, we can keep going. How does that Roman soldier respond to me? Well, first of all, I'm sh he's shocked that I'm willing to go that far. And he starts to see me, this Christian, this believer, in a completely different light because I'm willing to do more than I'm asked to do. Now, see, the one, you, I just saw you. I just saw you. Those who just had the notion that he gonna think I'm weak and he can take advantage of me. That's a worldview. That's what the world would tell you. That's exactly the problem. That's why we don't ever do this because the world would impose notions on me of how I'm perceived. And what Jesus is saying is those worldly perceptions don't matter. You still ought to do what's right. Why? Because Christ is watching you. And the judge you ought to be concerned about is Christ. So he simply said to you, you need to reject what is acceptable. You need to respond in grace. And then you need to follow Christ's example. What's his example? His example is radical. Jesus Christ's example is radical. I'm going to tell you to go back and read later of these scriptures because they tell you what Jesus Christ did under the same circumstances when he was challenged. See, he didn't tell us to do something he didn't do himself. And so I want you to write down Matthew 26, verses 50 through 54. 50 through 54. And then in that same chapter, verses 65 through 68. What did Jesus do? Well, the time came when Jesus got out of the classroom of theory. He's no longer standing on the pulpit preaching, but he's in the laboratory of life and he shows them. See, there's one sermon that comes from the classroom when everything is easy and people are taking notes. There's a completely different, completely different one that comes when you're out there in the world and suddenly you have to apply what you just told folk to do. And so people want to see a sermon more than they want to hear a sermon. And Jesus got the opportunity to show them the sermon. And when did it happen? It happened when one of Jesus's own, one he chose, one who walked with him for three years, one who ate with him and fellowship with him, came and he was leading a pack of Roman soldiers. Unbeknownst to, to the crowd, this one disciple had already told the Roman soldiers, the one I go up and kiss is going to be the one you're looking for. And Jesus was there with the rest of the group when Judas comes up to him and hugs him and kisses him. And Jesus looks at him without any, 
prior conversation and says to him, do what you came for. In other words, I know why you're here. So go ahead and do what you came for. It might read a little different in different versions of the Bible. And so then the Roman soldiers came forward. They seized Jesus Christ. They arrested him. And then one of Jesus' disciples, you know, Peter, reached for a sword, drew it, and hit one of the guards on the ear and cut his ear off. The man's name was Malchus, according to Scripture. And the Bible says that Jesus turned to him. Here I am being snatched into custody. Jesus stops the action, and he turns to his other disciple, Peter, who had just cut this man's ear off, and he said, put the sword down. All right? Because he said, if you, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he said to him, do you not think that if I wanted to, I could tell my father in heaven, I could call on my father in heaven, and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels to stop this from happening. He said, but if I do that, how would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And so Jesus allowed himself to be arrested by them. He allowed himself to be arrested by them. He put into action that even though I have the power to stop this right now, I'm going to show you that I can be submissive under these circumstances. Why? Because there's a greater cause than you know of taking place. And then the other example that he gives is even more poignant than this one. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. He's being tried unjustly after his arrest. He's before the high priest who is trying to make the case that Jesus is a subversive and in need of crucifixion or death. And while he's accusing Jesus, Jesus remains silent. He doesn't say anything. And the high priest demanded that he say something to him. And he said, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus' response was, you have said so. Now, I'm sure by most standards, that would come off as a smart aleck. <laughs> a smart aleck remark. And Jesus said, but I say unto you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, to which the high priest proclaimed his conversation as blasphemy, tore his clothes off, which was a sign of utter frustration, utter contempt. And when he tore his clothes off, he said to them, he's deserving of death. And he asked the group, what do you think? And they all said, he's deserving of death. But not just that. Verse 67 says, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. And others slapped him. 
verse 68 said, they screamed to him, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Jesus does not respond or retaliate to them. It's one thing to tell you something. It's another thing to show you. <laughs> Under those circumstances that I can do what I'm telling you to do. And so Christ's example is that he did what he's instructing us to do. Paul carried on that mantra when he wrote to his church in the Roman letter. He said, do not take revenge, my dear friend, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine. I will avenge. I will, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy's hungry, Paul wrote, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can I tell you something? If you've never tried this before, I'm just going to give you a Christian um, cheat code. Be nice to folk who are ugly to you. First of all, it confuses them. <laughs> all right? They don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with it. Is it hard? Yes. Yeah. Go in your, go in your car and scream in your coat. But be nice to people who are being ugly to you. And before long, it won't be an act. All right. Before long, you'll see how absolutely incapable of understanding they, they are. And watch this. If they understand from that act of your niceness that they've been wrong, guess what? You've won somebody over. If not, all it does is amplify how truly wrong they are. They no longer have that attaboys from their friends or, uh, or they no longer have the chorus of people egging them on because then it's just completely unfair and they become the true villain that people think they are. But watch this now. When you try to get back at them, sometimes your overreach in getting back at them puts you on the wrong side of the equation. And therein lies the problem. So make sure that when you are handling situations like this that come up in your life, Make sure you're on the right side of God's rescue. All right? Make sure you're the victim and not the villain when God's come, come back. Because you'll turn around. You ever notice in school when kids get into a fight, it's the second one that get caught. The first one hit them, and then the next one come back and hit them back. That's the one that gets caught. Every time. Ain't that how it works, teachers? Yeah, they don't know what started it. All I know, this is what she said, all I know is I looked around and I saw Daniel hit him. They don't know that Daniel got his face tore up right before that happened. But because of the circumstances, when the authority comes in, you on the wrong side of the equation. And what I'm telling you is when you're trying to get somebody back, you got to go a long way to explain why you came back hitting them. And that's what this is saying. Be on the right side of God's rescue. 
when he comes, even though he's all-knowing, it's not perfect. Now, when he's all-knowing, make sure he's not having to deal with you as aggressor and that he can deal with his child who has been harmed. Because you can go too far in trying to get folk back. Yeah. You, you, can, you can just do too much. And suddenly the wrong that was done to you pales in comparison to what you've done to the person just in retaliation. All right? So be careful. Be on the right side of it. Don't use the riches of this world to try to exact punishment because the scripture says that when you use it, then you become as those riches. Yeah, and those riches will, they, they become ruined and moth-eaten and corroded, and that's exactly what happens to you in the time that you try to get them back. So be on the right side of the Lord, trust in God to come to the rescue, trust him. There is a word that you have to put into the equation if you're going to trust in the Lord. And that word is patience. You have to be patient. Because God's timing is not our timing. And the example that's used in making sure we understand the necessity of patience, the example that's used by James is that of the farmer. The farmer has to be patient. If you can't be a farmer and not be patient, right? Because nothing happens quickly in that line of business. And all my years of farming, <laughs> well, you got to be patient because the Lord is coming. Yeah. He'll rescue you, but it'll be in his time. It'll be in his time. And his rescue will be precious. He'll take care of you because you belong to him. You know how sweet that first plum is that comes off that plum tree for that, for that farmer who has been waiting all season for them to bud and watch them. And he makes sure he keeps everything grow, uh, 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 make sure that there's no pestilence on it, make sure that there's no, no disease on it, make sure that he keeps the weeds away from it. That first plum becomes absolutely magnificently sweet to him. We've got, uh, we've got a neighbor in our neighborhood who has one of those plum trees with those big botan plums on it, the purple ones, big ones, you know, the ones you pay good money for in the grocery store. And it sits on the edge of her property, and um, she'd rather see him drop off the tree and die then share them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we drive by there and the tree is fat with plums. I mean, just limbs bending down. That's how, yeah. But by this time, all those plums should be picked and shared with someone by now. All those kids and families around there could certainly benefit from them. Instead, the ground is littered with dying plums. Dying plums. She doesn't value what God has given to her. Uh, for a country girl like Karen, she's struggling. She, I have to speed up when I go by that house. Yeah, because that's just not the way of people. You make sure that if God gives you a bounty like that, 
that you share it with someone, particularly since, since you can't you can't eat all that. Yeah, but patience is included in that. And what I'm telling you is when it comes to getting revenge because someone has been ugly to you, patience has value. You're growing during the time. And so the growth that you experience during that time, it's like the sweetness of the fruit that you get because you're more mature under those circumstances. All right. And then the last thing I'm telling you and I'm out of here is not only do you trust in God to come to the rescue. All right. You have to strengthen your heart while you wait for him, which means you're not just waiting there impatiently. No, no. You're trying to be better as a person. You're strengthening yourself and you're studying. You're working while you're growing. All of these things are necessary for you to get the full value of why you had to wait in the first place. You got to actively strengthen your heart. You're not waiting like a child who's been punished, who can't get the piece of cake until after he finishes all his peas. Not like that. You know, that almost feels like punishment when you got to do it. No. You're taking the rest of the meal in stride and thanking your mama for the hard work she did while she cooked it for you and, and thanking your daddy for being able to have a job to go out and purchase it for you. This is maturity. We have to learn how to grow to that point, that point. not complain. Too many of us complain too much about things that we ought to be grateful for. And the only way you can learn to be grateful is to learn the true definition of thank you. When you learn how to say thank you a lot, then that helps put you in a perspective that teaches you not to complain as much. So remember those examples that come from scripture, none being greater than the example that Jesus Christ gave us. When you pursue your own retaliation, it reveals a heart that does not trust the Lord. When you pursue it, it means I'm not trusting God to handle this. And that's a deeper problem than the insult you've received. When you don't trust God to take care of you, then you got some other issues going on. But when you trust God, you put your faith in him to deal with the circumstances, then just as he took care of his son and validated his son's patience, he'll validate yours as well. Look at the reward Jesus got for not retaliating. Look how God blessed him. Yes, I know you say Jesus died, so will we. But the reward that Jesus got was life eternal, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I got to tell you right now, there are going to be some things that are going to happen in your life that nobody can ever make up for. They can never make it right for you. But oh, the day that Jesus looks at you and says to you, good and faithful servant, well done. All of the problems of this life will be seen as nothing. So don't spend the days that God gives you trying to pursue someone who has mistreated you, somebody who copied off your test when you were in the third grade and got the yellow sticky that you thought you were supposed to get, somebody who cheated and got a position in high school that you thought was better reserved for you, somebody who double-crossed you 
and took the man that was supposed to be your husband. Stop trying to get folk back. Yeah, consider it all joy and realize that he wasn't going to be no good husband in the first place if he let himself be took by somebody else. There's a whole lot of that going on right now, and we waste our time when there are many other things that we could be doing. He'll come to your rescue, and he'll come at a time when it's right on time. The Lord came to us when he didn't have to. He rescued us when we couldn't save ourselves. He stayed with us so he could have an understanding of who we are. He died for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And the gift that God gave us was to resurrect him and make him an advocate for each one of us. Right now, he's sitting there on the right hand of the Father, advocating for you and the circumstances of your life. My question to you today is, do you trust him? Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? If you've never done that, then I got to tell you today that he's waiting on you to make that decision. If today's the day that you've just come to know him, then I invite you to accept the gift of eternal life that he has died for. Maybe you're looking for a church family that you can call your own, one you can fellowship with. I can't tell you how proud I was of 45th Street church family yesterday. So proud. That's what a family's about. We celebrate in the good times. We embrace and we support in the bad times. And I was so glad when I saw people, different folk from the church, in and out, loving on Robert Maddox, trying to support him in the way that they could. I'm so glad he had that available to him. But it came about because he invested in this church. How do I know he invested? I'm not talking about money. He's invested his life in this church. He's invested his time in this church. He's invested his relationships in this church. You two can have that same kind of responsibility, that same kind of relationship. Now's the chance for you to come forward. While the church church's doors are wide open, choir's going to sing a song of welcome.